There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Um, moving on now to our wonderful guest in the studio. Welcome to Louise Nichol. Hi, Annabelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining Hi, us. Alex. So you are a Dubai-based journalist. Um, you've written profiles. Funnily enough, we were just talking about the Kim Kardashian principle. You've actually written profiles of Kim Kardashian, Princess Rania, and more. You're the former editor of Harper's Bazaar and Mother of Three. That's and correct. a bookworm as well. I am. Although I am in the Philistine category as I sit here with my... Kindle. <laughs> so I, I am a proponent of the portable book, it has to be said. But it, that, I think that is something with having young kids. I'm often awake in the middle of the night and it's the only way to read without putting a light on and disturbing my long-suffering husband. So the Kindle is revolutionary for me. I was actually, because you confessed this to me via email mm. about reading on a Kindle and you confessed it with a little bit of guilt and a little bit of shame. And that's something that I actually wanted to bring up now because um, you said that you're a bad person. You're a Philistine. That's what you said just now because you read on a Kindle. And I think it's quite funny because we're talking about this idea right now of the inherent value of a printed book versus say an electronic one um so much so that when printed books have folded down pages or are split in half to be made more portable people lose their minds um so i don't think that you need to feel bad about reading on a kindle i think as long as you're, my my view is as long as you're reading it doesn't really matter how you're reading if a kindle works for you then that's great and i actually wondered you know with your um job title and just how busy you are how did you get your reading done? How do you get your reading done? So Kindle is a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, I read myself to sleep. I do read at night. I, I mean, I think actually professionally, I'm someone who's come from a print background and seen my entire industry get turned on its head and move digital. So, and I myself am a part of that in the way that I then consume books. With the Kindle, the one thing that it does do for the book industry is it, it doubles its sales for me because my strategy is... I read whatever I want on my Kindle, anything that stays with me and that I want my kids to read at some point in the future or to be able to discover in the house, I then buy a hard copy of and make sure it's in the house so that when they're of an age, they'll be able to pick it up and find it, which is how I found books when I was a young teenager. I read my parents, but entirely inappropriate. I, I mean, I was reading Julie Cooper at eight, but you know, this is how I found books. Do they know now? My parents, yeah. I mean, I think they can probably tell when they <laughs> Should we send this to link me? to them afterwards? <laughs> I got this entirely inappropriate daughter. But I, you know, I'm good with that. I want my kids. So that's, so anything that I read that I think, yes, I then buy. So I double buy. So it does well. Anything that was a bit throwaway, fine, it's gone. I don't have it in the house. So actually authors do pretty well out of me. I pay twice. I think that's a great tip as well. I mean, it's something that we've mentioned on Talking of Books before, but I, I remember, you know, just from being a teenager, the last thing that you want to do is what somebody tells you to do. So if somebody, like your parents particularly, are telling you, you must read this, you're not going to read it. But if you, if you show... If you lead by example, you're far more likely to create an impact with your kids, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that's the only concern is that they see me holding this. Do they know what I'm doing? Right. Do they know that I'm reading a book? They don't know what I'm... Half the time, I don't know what I'm reading because that's the thing with a Kindle. You just, you know, I, I download stuff when I hear about it and then I just turn it on. I get halfway through a book, I don't even know what's called. Um. I really like that, though. <laughs> so, which in a way is good because you're not swayed by the cover. You're yep. not swayed by the... It's just whenever I hear something, I'm always on Amazon. I always buy it. I stick it in and then I just read through it. Um, so, but, yeah, they're not seeing me 
you know, do this, which, uh, sorry, for listeners, I was holding up a paper book. Um, so I do worry that that doesn't instill in them that love of reading because it's monkey see, monkey do, right? You do what you do, what you, you mm. see your parents doing. But I do love my Kindle, I have to say. And we shall not... We, not, we shall not pry it from your hands Please at don't. all. Um, speaking of being a well-read person um, and everything that's on your Kindle, we were going to take a tour of your bedside table in a non-creepy, oh entirely what-are-you-reading kind of way. I'm just going to establish that. Realise that as soon as it came out of my mouth, it sounded a bit weird. Readers recommend. Okay, so what are you reading at the moment? Can we start with a little bit of memoir? So th- this one, yes, yes. So the Nadia Hussein memoir, Finding My Voice, um, and obviously Nadia is at the Emirates Lit Fest, which is a wonderful. I think she's a wonderful guest to have because she's someone who's really infiltrated culture in such an interesting way. And I noticed this when I was at home in the UK in the summer, and my mum had her cookbook, and my mum's pushing 70 she won't forgive me hopefully she's not listening she's we'll not send the, the link immediately to outside her. of the UAE and she's very traditionally British it's roast beef it, you know her cooking is very English and when I got home I saw this cookbook on the side and I was just what on earth just like she cooks exactly like me no fuss five minutes simple ingredients put it all together she speaks exactly to me and this is someone who's come from like Mary Berry and Nigella and all this you know and I just thought wow I loved that that someone who is completely outside of my mum's sort of cultural circle you know speaks so closely to her and yet has an entirely different background and growing up and experience and I really love that she's brought that to such a wide demographic. And I don't cook. So there are recipes. Naji Hussein's written many, many recipe books. Um, This is her first memoir. And it's divided into sort of her life type. So the sister, granddaughter, earner, mother, um, all the roles that she finds herself in within her life. And there are recipes at the end of each. There's a poem at the end of each. Those two I would to the side but the main body of the chapter is wonderful her voice is really really talented she writes and speaks if you want to listen to it on audible which is something I always love to do with memoir and autobiography in a really engaging way and it's actually really touching to to hear the story of she's from a Bangladeshi immigrant family growing up in Luton in England And just the experiences that she's gone through, she retells it with great humour and tenderness and the portraits that she paints of the people around her, everyday people, not famous, not wealthy, not Kim Kardashian, but she paints them with such tenderness and truth and honesty. It it really, I found it really, really touching, just the tiny little turns of phrase that she has. So I would really, really highly recommend it. And I don't cook. So we are talking about Finding My Voice by Nadia Hussein, um, famous, of course, for winning the Great British Bake Off. And I think if anybody is familiar with that show, I, don't, I know you said that you don't cook, but did you watch the Great British Bake Off? Oh, yes. Obsessed with Bake Off. It's funny, Particularly isn't it? before the move to Channel 4, but I, I still watch it now. My kids love it. We all love it. And she made the Queen's 90th birthday cake. She did. And didn't it have orange? Didn't it have marmalade in it? I think. Oh, it did. I can't do marmalade. That's terrible. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting because even if you don't necessarily cook, even if you're not really into baking, and and if you are, a lot of people remember that moment where she won, where she spoke to the camera and she said, you know, I didn't think she could do it, but I can, and I did. 
um, and it was incredibly inspiring. And I think it's really interesting how strong the voice is in this when it's a memoir titled Finding My Voice. So I think when I approached this, I don't know about you, I expected it to be tentative, but it's not at all. No, she's, she's probably ballsy, if I'm allowed to say that. I mean, there are rude words in this book that we shan't be reading yes, on the radio. Please, I, I was worried <laughs> Annabelle's for a minute. Annabelle's got a shade of grey there. Shade of grey, yes. <laughs> but she's, she is a Muslim woman and she had an arranged marriage at 20, which turned into the love of her life. Um, and she has, she's one of six kids. So she comes from a very conservative background, but she, she really has found her voice. We've already kind of established um, how it's structured. So she intermixes... She mixes um, her roles as a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister. Um, there's recipes at the end of each of these sections um, with a poem as well. You've skipped those um, elements, um, but you're talking about how raw and honest it is. And we were mentioning the fact that Finding My Voice it, it's um, it's a title that when I approached the book, I thought, you know, she'd be quite quiet, quite tentative, but it's a very strong voice. Would you mind reading some of it for us, Louise? Sure. Well, there are girls out there who are quiet, just like I used to be, who are allowing their lives to be steered in the hope that one day they might find their happy. And with that, their voice, who are growing up being told, it's not appropriate. No, you can't. It's not the done thing. With this book, I want to show that actually, who cares if it's not appropriate? You can, and it is the done thing. We all have a voice. Yours might be loud and strong or quiet yet insistent. I have always tried to use mine for the right reasons, to make myself heard, to tell those I love how much they mean to me, to shine a light on the important issues of the day. But I wasn't always like that. In fact, occasionally, even now, I find myself forgetting I have a voice and have to find ways of locating it all over again. Whatever life path we are walking, whatever God we follow or not, Whatever choices we make along the way, we all have moments when we stumble and somewhere in those stumbled, jumbled thoughts and life choices, it's easy to lose this very important part of what makes us who we are. Whether you decide to use your voice to change the world, to retaliate, to say I love you or to drop the F-bomb, it's yours to use how you wish. But life can have a funny way of sometimes muting it, dulling its passion. Thank you so much. What a beautiful passage. Um, Louise Nicol, they're reading from Finding My Voice by Nadia Hussein, who is going to be at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature in February. Um, Alex, I, I want to turn to you very briefly because, I mean, there's been uh, quite a female focus um, on this, you know, mother, daughter, wife, sister, two females <laughs> talking about the book at the moment. But I'd like a male perspective on this. I mean, did yeah. it speak to you at all in any yeah. way? I must say, I feel like Tom Urquhart on the Helen Farmer show here at the moment, <laughs> um, for a little two-by-I reference. But uh, yeah, listen, I, I, for me, I guess, reading it, I, uh, I, it's the underdog story, I guess. Yeah. And it's an amazing story. It's a remarkable story. And I know we kind of all know the outside of the story, how this woman emerged from nowhere, okay, you know, a Muslim woman from Luton, as you said, coming on to the Great British Bake Off and winning. It was, a, it was such an extraordinary story at the time. But then to go into it and to see the details of her life, I guess the thing that for me, I mean, I've read a lot of, uh, about Malala and I've read Malala's books and there was little elements of that that I found of, of having the courage to speak, having the courage to be truthful, having the courage to stand up when you need to stand up. I found it a very, it's a very gentle book. Um, it does have some sort of 
uh, powerful sort of sections, but it's a very gentle book and it's a very inspiring book. I think it's a really good book to read for anybody, really, especially in the UAE, to say that, you know, what you have to say. I mean, I do a lot of voice coaching as well, and I talk to people about finding the power of their own voice. And one of the things I just say to get people to say is my voice is powerful my voice is powerful and her voice is very powerful and it's great that she's discovered that and it's great she's sharing this story and congratulations to you know the publishers of the book the people who encouraged her to write it because it's an important story and it's great she's coming in the lit to the lit fest to share it in person now you mentioned very quickly there malala and inspiring stories just want to remind everybody that also coming to the literature festival is malala's father malala um ziadin yusufzai um and his wife tor pakai um they all be talking about his memoir let her fly and their story of raising um, malala yusufzai um, who of course went on to become a nobel peace prize winner um, and more so that's going to be an incredibly inspiring story if you haven't read the memoir let her fly you absolutely must it's absolutely wonderful um, moving back to nadia hussein now we've spoken a lot about nadia um, but here she is talking about what it felt for her to write this book this is what she had to say you know, I'm not solving the world's problems, but I am talking about them. And I think that's really important because that's the first place. I think that's where we have to start. And I think by sharing it, it is, of course, I felt vulnerable sharing it because it, it, you feel, I feel utterly naked stood in front of everyone talking about something that is so close to me. Mm -hmm. But I know there are people and I've met loads of people since the book's been out that have experienced the same thing and said, this is the first time I'm talking about it. And that's got to be a good thing. That has to be. Nadia Hussain that I'm not solving the world's problems, but I am talking about them. Um, just to wrap up, Louise, with uh, this memoir, what's the one thing that you'd like to ask Nadia at the festival? Gosh. So, I, I mean, thinking about the book, just, just rethinking about it then when she was speaking, there are some fairly brutal scenes of the racist bullying that she encountered as a child. And I think writing that and ha knowing that your parents might be reading it and the pain it's it's going to bring to them and the sexual abuse as well that she uncovered in therapy since she didn't realize that she had anxiety and, and was probably a cause of that is so brave to to do that and I guess having that courage to to write these things that you know are going to hurt the the people close closest to you how you summon the courage to do that is mm. something that I admire and and would like to know how she did that. I think for me personally, on a much smaller scale, one of the things that really spoke to me was these portraits that she painted of the people around her. And I think that speaks to the community, particularly the Bangladeshi community and how close-knit those family ties are. And that's something that perhaps in a Western culture we lose. And there's a few phrases she's describing her grandmother and it really kind of made me cry. And it was nothing sad was happening. It was just... I think, gosh, did I miss that when I was growing up? Did I miss observing those so close to me? Because we don't have that sense of community and family that, that um, other cultures do. And it, it really made me rethink the way that we should interact with those in our family and those around us. So um, I'd ask her about the courage, but what I took away was this this remembrance of these people around you in everyday tiny tiny circumstances um i wanted to move on now to a children's author which is quite fitting because nadia hussain's actually she's doing a children's session at the festival on her wonderful picture book my monster and me as well um another author doing a children's session which unfortunately has sold out is the wonderful 
Oliver Jeffers. Now, he, I don't know if many people know this because the children's session has sold out. Um, a lot of people have been clamoring for tickets, um, but he does have an adult event um, that he's doing, which is basically um, about his journey to becoming um, a children's author and illustrator, or as he likes to call it, um, a picture book illustrator. Um, he prefers using the words picture books rather than children's books. This is what he has to say about that. I don't call them children's books. I call them picture books because by calling them children's books, it uh, relegates non-children from thinking they can enjoy them. I didn't necessarily sit down and think, okay, I want to tell stories that are for this age group. It's nothing to do with that. I've just told stories in uh, as visual and an economic way as possible and as accessible as possible. The uh, Working Mind and Drawing Hand of Oliver Jeffers, that's his adult event. Um, he'll be speaking at the festival on Saturday, the 8th of February at 6 o'clock. Um, and so he'll be talking about his thoughts on storytelling, picture making, navigating the world around us um, and how he often cross-references and influences um, picture books, social commentary and how the two kind of play off each other in all of his work. Now, you're most familiar with the children's books, I imagine, Louise. I am. I mean, the, the day the crayons quit, which he illustrated, didn't write, is an absolute classic in our house. That comes out at least once a week. What have you found about how your children respond to his books versus how you respond to them? Is it very different? Do you both kind of enjoy the same bits of it? Like, how, What's the experience been like for your kids particularly? They just find that hilarious, that one. I mean, I don't particularly, but I, it is... It's such a great concept. My favourite is the little peach crayon that's naked and is too ashamed to come out of the crayon box. So it's shy. Very cute. And you step back and you think, what a great concept. You know, the, the blue crayon is running out because it's doing all the oceans and the sky and there's and the orange is fighting with the yellow. They all want to be the sun. And it's, it, I think it's that way of looking at these everyday objects and then imagining this life behind them that really speaks to a child that everything because they think everything's alive they think their teddies are alive you know so they're it, not I'm sorry gosh oh, don't sack me oh my goodness they are they're entirely all alive but it's that way of looking at the world through a child's eyes and I think like he said there that he doesn't do it for a specific age he just writes his imagination that, yeah that really works and engages so many people one thing I wanted to mention about this while we're talking about um the arty side of of Oliver Jeffers and kind of the fine art background that's something that's going to come up in um, his grown-up event and I found this really interesting story about um, an exhibition that he put on in 2014 now we were talking about destruction of books earlier which is it's really upset you Alex I mean you're just slumped against the desk thinking about this um but this is basically a review. This is this clandestine art exp exhibition in New York in 2014. And what happened was a group of viewers were led to a basement. I mean, I'd be really worried at this point. And then extra worried when I saw, quote, silent assistants dressed in white um, escorting me to meet the artist. Um, and apparently Oliver was basically next to this portrait of a beautiful middle-aged woman with white hair. And the portrait was suspended above this vat of red paint. And uh, he said before um, dipping the painting that he'd been, you know, painting for, for months into this vat of red paint, he said people have had their portraits painted for thousands of years to mark their presence as a way of being remembered. This is a portrait that I painted alone in my studio over several months. It hasn't been photographed. You are the first, the last, the only people to see this in its entirety. And then he dunked it in paint. 
and basically, you know, covered up his work. And the inspiration behind this is quite beautiful. Um, and it connects to the idea of memoir, because we were talking about memoir earlier. He says, storytelling is the key to immortality. Part of the premise for this whole project is that I lost my mum 14 years ago. One night, my younger brother and I were telling a story and we realised we were remembering it completely differently. Memory is an imperfect recording device like that. I find this incredibly courageous. It's astonishing. I mean, I don't think I would ever be able to do it, uh, to take something I've written and just destroy it, especially if I didn't have a copy. But to not even take a photograph and then to dip it in, I mean, that's just amazing. It reminds me of a Black Black Mirror episode, which has a similar commitment to art. But uh, it's, yeah, it's just an extraordinary story. He sounds like the most uh, astonishing guy, really. And the fact that he can work in high art, and I would describe what he's done there as high art, uh, to that level, and then also be able to write key plays or sorry books that uh, appeal to children. It's quite remarkable. I think because he doesn't draw lines between these things. You know, he's just he's he's telling stories, and he's not really thinking about oh, these are stories for children, like like we heard in the clip earlier. Um, is that something that you think you would be able to do, Louise, with a piece of either art or writing that you'd created for months and then just destroy it? after maybe one person had read it and then just destroy it so there's no record of it ever again? I don't know that I could presume to have created anything that wouldn't benefit from being destroyed. Let's say that you had. (laughs) Let's say that you had. I'm certainly not a painting. My goodness, I can't even draw a stick man. Um, I don't know. I like the idea behind it and this idea that memory is imperfect. Um, But you like someone else to do it. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah. I just don't know that I could create anything yeah, I anyone I'd would have... be particularly bothered about destroying or not destroying, to be honest. I think but I'd have a similar problem. I wouldn't want other writers to do it because I'd want to read yeah. their work if everyone destroyed everything before we could enjoy it. It's um, an interesting one, this idea of dis- dis- destroying writing and destroying art and what that actually means. Um I know that you're excited not just about Oliver Jeffers coming to the festival, but also about Luke Jennings, who's the author of Codename Villanelle, which I think a lot of people will be familiar with if they've seen Killing Eve. Why are you such a fan? So I came to it through Killing Eve, as I suppose many people did. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge has had so many accolades off the back of it, as well as Jodie Comer, who plays Villanelle, and Sandra Oh, who plays Eve Palastri, the two female protagonists. So it's kind of, it is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So hang on, hang on, I'm going to step back from there. In in the public's perception and the way it's spoken about. So when you delve deeper and realise that actually it's a series of novellas written by a man, Luke Jennings, who is a dance critic. He critiques ballet for the Observer newspaper in the UK. And it was self-published on Amazon, actually for Kindle, um, over four years between, I think, 2012 to 16, something like that. Um, So I was so curious to read the source material because everyone holds Phoebe Waller-Bridge up rightly as a genius and a creative talent who is changing the world with her eye on life and you know she's doing Bond and Fleabag what have you how much of it is her and how much of it was him so I was so curious to go back to the source material and figure that out for myself and so much of it's him absolutely thank you yeah and I thought I kind of thought 
How did you let her take all the credit? Well, exactly. And how does he continue to do this? I cannot wait to speak to Luke because it's the first question I'm going to ask him. I'm going to ask him. But it's the most remarkable thing, too, that a lot of the stuff that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has added isn't actually that good. And if she'd stuck more to the books, to the source material, I mean, it goes in such wildly divergent. You see, George, you think George R. Martin, Game of Thrones, wait till you actually read the originals of, of, Code, of Codename Villanelle and then see where it goes. And, okay, she's taken it in a more quirky direction, but it is a better direction, I'm not sure. And there's so much wonderful things in Codename Villanelle in both the, the books that's been left out of the series. So it's, I mean, you've got to read these books because they're really wonderful books and I think they give us a different insight into Villanelle. The really, really interesting thing, of course, is the series, the lead character is Eve Palastri. The books, the lead character is Villanelle. Mm. Do you think that that is a strength, Louise, or do you, do you prefer the other way around? I, for me, it's the interplay between the two. I, I, yeah, I I do prefer Eve's stronger voice in the TV, but she's also older. So Sandra Oh is a lot older. He writes her as tw- he writes Eve as twenty nine. Mm. Sandra Oh is I don't know forty something. Um, so that dynamic changes, and I do think that works. I like mm. having Eve older, but her dishevelment, her chaos, her private life up in the air, her lack of fashion sense is all from him. Um, Villanelle is 100% drawn by him I think the Jodie Comer is very much his creation I think he's probably just a really nice guy and I think he's so grateful to what's happened to his work that he self-published as a series of short novellas codename Villanelle is the four of them brought together um, to, and he, I think you know he's he was a journalist writing about ballet and I think his wife was studying, you know, they weren't bringing in a huge amount of income. And then suddenly he's got BBC America signed his work and it's the biggest thing in the world. So I think he's just a really humble, grateful guy, pro- probably. And credit to Phoebe Waller-Bridge because what she does is she makes a lot more of the relationship between Villanelle and Eve, which isn't so big in the books because Villanelle has another relationship. She has another love interest, which is not really gone into in the series. So she makes it about that relationship between the two. And really the ending of the second of Luke's books really is only sort of the ending of probably the first series. So I I do find it really, really interesting. But there's so many insights into into Villanelle in the books that you really have to read them. have to get them. Get them at the Lit Fest or get them wherever you like. You've got to read these books because you're going to learn so much more about the character. And so fascinating that it was a guy who realised that this espionage spy, James Bond, John le Carre, whatever genre, needed turning on its head and created a two-woman header with the, the, you know, the psychopathy and the fashion. He's got all the fashion. Man, I mean, he loves the fashion. Let's lo- well, so the funny. ballet. The way that he describes like the half a page what she's wearing to the Italian opera, or yeah. she really goes into detail about what they're wearing and what they're how they're standing, which which I love too. But it's just you know I'm just thinking now about the book and some of the lovely parts that I really love that of course never in the series. And it's it's just going to be fascinating to talk to Luke about this and ask him and how does he how does he feel when he? Uh, but he does work on the miniseries, which is interesting. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, is there anything no. that you'd really like to ask Luke at the festival, Louise? If you put your hand up at the end in the Q&A. I mean, I, I don't think I would be brave enough to ask him, Come but on. I would inquire thinking, aren't you a little bit jealous that Phoebe's got all the glory? Right, okay. And 
it's your idea. So in the session, if we see you there, I'm going to come <laughs> make a straight beeline for you with a microphone. He, he might have an assassin with a sniper rifle in the corner ready to take out any awkward questions. So I, I don't know, but maybe I'll just turn up in a fabulous Molly Goddard ball gown instead and and on that vision we are going to end the um segment right right now thank you so much uh louise for joining us in the studio it's been a pleasure to talk to you about all of the books that you've been reading and what you're looking forward to seeing at the emirates lit fest in february emiratesLitFest.com for more information about any of the authors that we've been talking about and also of course to buy tickets there's just so much more to hear download our podcasts at dubaii 1038.com